Our scripture reading this morning is found in the book of Acts, chapter 9. I don't have that pew Bible page here. But being good Baptist, naturally you carry your own Bibles anyway, so I'm sure you have your own Bibles. Acts chapter 9, we're going to read verses 1 to 6. That's Acts chapter 9, 1 to 6. Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. As he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly a light shone around him from heaven, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, Who are you, Lord? Then the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. It is hard for you to kick against the goads or the pricks. So he, trembling and astonished, said, Lord, what do you want me to do? Then the Lord said to him, Arise, and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of this most precious section of Scripture for our hearts this morning. Let's bow our heads and hearts for prayer. I know that with our pastor being away, they're big shoes to fill. <laughs> but uh, we trust the Lord will speak to us today. And much of what I have to say is not new. But you will find that there will be an odd thing that I'll bring out that I'm sure you never thought of. And let's just look to the Lord now in prayer and ask his blessing. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning, and we are so thankful that you are here. Your word declares it so, because we're here in your name. And where two or three are gathered in your name, there are you in the midst. But Lord, you're in our midst for a purpose. And so we pray that you will help us to discover your purpose in our lives today. And may our hearts, Lord, be impressed with the fact that you care so deeply for this human race. And Lord, may we in this congregation today become aware in a new dimension of just how much you really care about us. So Lord, we commit our way unto you. We pray you will speak through these lips of clay and we pray that you will prepare the hearts and the ears of those who listen. And may we go from this place, Lord, having profited by our gathering together in worship and in the word. We give you thanks for it now. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to start with a thought today that maybe you haven't thought about. You know, for every single thing that is made in this earth by God or man, everything that is made has a purpose for being made. You don't just go ahead and make something without a purpose. And what you make has a purpose to fulfill. And God, when he made man, had a purpose. And you know, the more valuable the item that you make, the more dear and precious it is to the one that makes it. If you spend hours and hours and hours making a piece of woodwork that you really prize and you think it's great, well, it has a purpose 
And you have a right to be proud of that which you have created. So God has created man. We're just a little bit lower than the angels, but we are the crown of his glory as far as what his creation is concerned here on earth. And when we come to Revelation chapter 4, and verse 10, we have a scene in heaven where it says, The four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne, and worship him that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Believe it or not, we are created for God's glory and we are created for his pleasure. God finds great pleasure in you and I. He even finds great pleasure in the ungodly. He created them and he's so interested in them that he'll do almost anything to reach them that's possible. I want, to, I want in my message this morning to present to us how far God will reach out to reach mankind. You know, God's so interested in every individual that he's even counted. No, he hasn't counted. He has numbered the hairs on your head. You will hear people talk about that and they say, God's counted the hairs on your head. No, it doesn't say that. It says he has numbered them. It's just like a car rally. Every car is marked with a number. Every, head on your head, every hair on your head has got a number. When you combed your hair this morning and half a dozen hair came out in your comb, God knows whether it was number 351 and 279 and etc., etc., and he also knows whether it will grow back again or it won't. But he has numbered every hair on your head. That's how much he's interested in you. My, that's, that's phenomenal. And so it tells us in Luke chapter 19 and verse 10, for the Son of Man is come to seek to seek and to save that which is lost. He has come to seek, to search out, to probe into our hearts, to bring a revelation to us. He's come to seek us, to woo us, to draw us, that he might be the apple of our eye and that we might fellowship with him. Now, we were made for fellowship. That's one of the purposes for which God made us. We're made for his pleasure, but God finds great pleasure in fellowship. We're the only part of God's creation that has the ability to worship God. God says that he created us in his image, in his likeness. We have a spirit that can reach out and touch God, and God's spirit can touch our spirit. And God is interested in fellowship with man, and it grieves him at his heart when man will not listen, or when man turns a deaf ear, he, it grieves him at his heart because he created him for that purpose. That's the purpose for which God created us, was that we might be in unison with him, that we might know him and be able to experience just how great and how marvelous and wonderful he is. The Bible talks about in the ages to come, we will explore the greatness of his glory. And there is no end to us learning the things of God. 
And in my preparation of my message, I learned a whole lot of little things. And I get blessed, and I, I have fresh revelations that come to me constantly. We're going to talk about three people in particular today, but more than that, but we're going to talk about Saul of Tarsus because he's, he's a Pharisee and he's representative of a whole body of Pharisees. Do you know that the Bible records two, no, 78 times in the Gospels the word Pharisee is used? How come that they are so important? <laughs> How come that they are kind of brought out into the open more than anybody else? You see, there were three different kinds of people in the days when Jesus was here. There were the Essenes, and there's a very, very small group of people. And then there were the Sadducees. They didn't believe in spirits. They didn't believe in the resurrection. No wonder they were sad, you see. And then you have the Pharisees. They were by far the largest group of people. And they had much the greatest influence in the land of Israel at that time. Now, <clears throat> I want us to turn in our Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. I've got so much to say today that I just have to ask the Lord to help me to, to just bring out that part that he really wants me to stress. But in Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> before I start on that, for 400 years after the writings of Malachi, which is the last prophet of the Old Testament, for 400 years there had not been a voice from heaven. No prophet in Israel. Until the birth of Jesus and the birth of John the Baptist, there had not been a prophet in Israel. And so as we come to this scene here, it says, in these days... John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There are these three people we I talked about, Saul of Tarsus. We talk about Jesus, and we talk here about John the Baptist. They are contemporaries. They are within three or four years of each other in their births. When you go to the book of Luke, you will discover that as John the Baptist's father was performing his duties in the temple, that as he went into the temple to perform his duties, he discovered when he got to the altar of incense where he was to offer up the incense that there was an angel standing there. And he said to the angel said to uh, Zacharias, he said, your prayer is heard. What had he been praying for? Well, he had been praying for a son. His wife was barren. They were now well stricken in years, in fact, beyond the age where they might bear children. But he still was praying. Why did he pray for a son? Well, you see, he knowing his Old Testament scriptures, he knew that Abraham had one when he was 100 years of age. <laughs> and Sarah was, was well past the age of childbearing. So it, was, it wasn't beyond the pale of possibility with God. 
And the angel said to him, Your prayer is heard, and your wife is going to have a child, and you are to call his name John. Now, John is a name that's given to him. It was to be used, just like when Jesus was born, thou shalt call his name Jesus. Now, this is Gabriel who was standing here talking to him, and he said, you're going to have a son. And this son is going to be used of God to introduce the Messiah to the world. He said, your child will be filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. Where else do you find that in the scripture? That's very unusual. Filled with the Holy Spirit from his mother's womb. And he will do exploits. Now in these days, John the Baptist came. Now remember that John's father had been a priest. His mother was of the household of Aaron. So he has legitimate uh, pedigree to be heard. He is now 30 years of age. And he is out in the wilderness. And God comes to him in the wilderness and tells him that what he is to do and when to do it. And so in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he, he's referring to the Old Testament scripture found in Isaiah chapter 40, this is he that is spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, or Isaiah, saying, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of what? The Lord. Prepare the way of the Lord. When you go to the Old Testament, it says prepare the way of our God. Make his path straight. The same John that had his raiment of camel's hair and a leathern girdle about his loins and his meat and was locusts and wild honey. Then went out to him Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region round about Jordan. When you go to the other Gospels and read the records, you, you get a few more details. All of Jerusalem went out. I can find you another verse that literally says all. <laughs> all Jerusalem went out and all the regions of Judea. And believe me, Judea was the, by far the largest state or province of Israel. And where he was baptizing was in Bethsaida. And that's not the, there's two different Bethsaidas in the scripture. But where he was baptizing was approximately 42 kilometers from Jerusalem. I want you, I want to paint a picture here. I want you to visualize this in your mind's eye. It was just like... All of Kelowna, all of a sudden, taking off on foot. You know, they didn't have Cadillacs in those days. Very few people even had a donkey. And so it was by Shanks's pony, as we say. <laughs> they had to go on foot. And here you've got all of the city of Jerusalem. Now, I'm sure that not every individual went, but by and large, the whole city of Jerusalem went to hear John the Baptist. Now, that's a miracle. That's God's intervention. 
That's God coming on the scene in power, attracting people to go out and hear a man that's out in the wilderness. And all of Judea and the whole region round about Jordan. And when you go to the Gospel of Luke, it says, the multitudes, when he saw the multitudes that came to his baptism. This was no small affair. No small affair. And right in the midst of this, when all of these people have come and they've gathered and they're, they've come from afar, you can't make that journey there. And it's, it's a long journey, a one-day one journey, but you, to a round trip, it's going to be at least two. You're going to have to stay overnight. And in the midst of all of this great crowd that was there, who appears? Jesus came on the scene to be baptized of John. Jesus came and was baptized. And when Jesus came back up out of the water, the Bible says that the heavens were opened. And the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and lighted upon him. And a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. I believe that many of the scribes and Pharisees were present, for in the Gospel of, in every record that it talks about, they came. They came to the baptism. It was announced to the then known world of the, uh, that the, the spiritual leaders of earth, it was announced from heaven, this is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. There was no doubt from that moment on, there should never have been a doubt from that moment on, as to who Jesus was. This is my son, in whom I am well pleased. And when they saw many of the Pharisees and the Sadducees come to his baptism, he said unto them, O generation of vipers, who has warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Bring forth therefore fruits meet for repentance. Now, what was the main problem with the scribes and the Pharisees? For, for from that very moment on, they set themselves in opposition to Jesus. Did you ever wonder in your heart? I wonder how many Pharisees came to know the Lord or were baptized by John, I should say, to start with. Did you ever wonder that? Well, the Bible tells you. You didn't know that, did you? <laughs> In Luke, I think it's chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. And all the people that heard him and the publicans justified God were, be, were baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the counsel of God against themselves, being not baptized of him. They were not baptized. Oh, I'm not saying that the, some individual wasn't. And certainly later on there were some who be, became believers, I believe. But by and large, as a whole, the Pharisees, who carried the, the weight of the religious kingdom, you might say, in Israel, 
they rejected it, and they were not baptized, and they were not happy with what John preached, nor were they happy with what Jesus preached thereafter. Now, what was their problem? John said to them, Think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. But now also the axe is laid unto the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance. But he that cometh after me is mightier than I, whose shoes I am not worthy to bear. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost and with fire. Now the Pharisees, they were the people that prided themselves as being the most diligent in the keeping of the Old Testament law. Saul of Tarsus in particular was maybe one of the most diligent in that. As a matter of fact, after he was an apostle to the Gentiles and he knew the Lord, in his own writings he declares that as far as the keeping of the law was concerned, he was faultless. He kept it meticulously. He was, more, he was more exceedingly diligent, the scripture says, of the traditions of his fathers. Now the traditions were things that were added on by the teachers that were not Old Testament scripture, but they were details that they were added on that you must keep or you must do in order to be pleasing to God. And those are the kind of things that Jesus rebuked them for when he talked to them. But he was exceedingly zealous, Saul of Tarsus was. He was born in Tarsus, or I should say, he, he was raised in Jerusalem, but he was born in Tarsus. He came to Jerusalem when he was approximately 13 years of age. He sat at the feet of Gamaliel, who was the, no, the, the most noted uh, lawyer or, uh, and messenger of the Old Testament law. And... Uh, Paul, of his own writings and in his defense of himself as he appeared before different dignitaries, his own words, he was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He was an absolute master. He had his degree in the, in the language of the Hebrew, and that's what the Old Testament scriptures were written in. He was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. In other words, he was more exceedingly zealous than any other Pharisee. He was of the tribe of Benjamin. And... Uh, so we find that, uh, that, that being of the same age approximately as Jesus and John the Baptist, and that John the Baptist was 30 years of age when he came in with his baptism. Therefore, Saul of Tarsus was approximately 30 years of age, within a year or two. And he had been trained from the time he was young to become a member of the Sanhedrin that special body that held the most sway and power. And he may have come. In fact, I'm sure that Saul of Tarsus actually came to the baptism of Jesus. You say, how do you know? Well, you just write, you just follow Paul's writings in the New Testament. And he tells you where he gets his authority from for everything he says. It has been given unto me that which I have received of the Lord, that give I unto you. It is reported unto me by the house of Chloe. 
And then he says what they told him. When he came to the 19th chapter of the book of Acts, and he comes to people who are still following the baptism of John the Baptist, oh, he says, John the Baptist preached so-and-so. How did he know? He didn't say it was reported unto me <laughs> that John the Baptist preached so-and-so. No, I think he was one of the Pharisees that went. If he was one of the most zealous to find out about who this person was and who Jesus was and who John the Baptist was, and if he was so bound up with uh, wanting to oppress and put down these individuals with such zeal, I'm sure that he was, went out of his way many times. And the, the Pharisees on many occasions sent out special delegations of people to follow Jesus everywhere he went to find fault with what he said to find some reason whereby they could put him to death. They believed Jesus was an imposter. They did not believe him to be the Son of God. They did not believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. And John the Baptist said, except your righteousness, no, Jesus said, except your righteousness exceed the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees, you, will, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. With all their pedigree, with all of their, their legalistic keepings, with all of the efforts that they made, but Jesus said, without, if your righteousness doesn't exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, he's plainly saying that good works and keeping the law is not sufficient. The Lord wasn't against them keeping some of the laws of the Old Testament. That is, as far as the, uh, the uh, moral law is concerned, that never has been done away with. The good principles of the Old Testament still apply today as far as the moral law is concerned. It's just the sacrificial laws that were done away with in Christ because he became the once-for-all sacrifice for sin. So he made it very plain that your pedigree, your background, everything that you have done, you can even be a natural descendant of Abraham, as they claimed when they came to John's baptism. You can be a natural descendant, but that won't get you into heaven. And if the scribes and the Pharisees didn't make it by self-effort, nobody's going to make it <laughs> by self-effort. The only way you're going to get into heaven is by having the righteousness that exceeds what the scribes and the Pharisees had. They had self-righteousness, not God's righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is essential for us to reach heaven. We must have Jesus in our hearts. Life is not in a system. It's not in rules. Life, spiritual life, is in a person. It's in Jesus. He that has the Son has life. He that has not the Son has not life. It's as simple as that. Clear cut. Never can be added to. Never can be, sub never can be subtracted from. Now, we find that there were many pricks that were brought into the life of Saul of Tarsus. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. What pricks? All of the events that the Pharisees went through 
during a ministry of Jesus. They were pricks. They were goads in their side. You know, when you get a man like Nicodemus, who is a master teacher in Israel, very highly respected, but when he came to Jesus, Jesus said to him, you must be born again. Oh, Nicodemus isn't going to make it. No, he's not going to make it unless he's born again. You must be born again. Jesus said, are you a master teacher? A very preeminent one. That's the meaning of that in the Greek. But you must be born again. Jesus had many conversations with the scribes and the Pharisees in Matthew chapter 23. And he said, you appear very beautiful on the outside. You stand out on the street corner in all of your robes. You take the seats of the, the special seats at every major event that is happening. And you constantly are praying out loud where everybody can hear you and so on. They tried to impress the people with their spirituality, and they really didn't have any. And they were hypocrites. That's why he called them that. <laughs> Jesus called them hypocrites. Woe unto you, scribes, Pharisees, hypocrites! For you make clean the outside of the platter, but within you are full of all excess. He said they were like whited sepulchers. They appear beautiful on the outside, but within they're full of dead bones. And you know, before we know Jesus Christ, how does the Bible describe us? Ye who are dead in trespasses and in sins, hath God quickened. We were dead spiritually. We were just dead bones. <laughs> you know, without Jesus, there is no hope for us. That's why he came. If any man could have been saved by self-effort, Jesus need never have come. But it's because we couldn't. We were lost and without God and without hope. The Bible says so. But he came because he cares about us. He made us. I used that verse to start with very purposely. And for his pleasure we are made. But he finds pleasure when we surrender to him and believe that his way of operating our lives is far, far better than anything that we can do. And he gives to us his righteousness. We become his children. And we know the peace of God that passes all understanding. You know, Jesus went up to the temple. How's my time doing here? Jesus went up to the temple many times at the feasts during his earthly ministry. And he performed many mighty miracles. You see, at all of these feasts that were held in Jerusalem, they were obligated by Old Testament law in Deuteronomy 16 and 16, where every male 20 years of age and over must, of necessity, go up to the feasts at Jerusalem. Three of them were, obliga were obligatory. And people came from everywhere, from all of the known world. They came to Jerusalem for these feasts. Jesus went up to those feasts and he performed many mighty miracles. 
Jesus was crucified at the Feast of Passover, one of those three feasts when all of the Jews of necessity must be present. At the crucifixion, at the time of the offering up of the evening sacrifice, the veil in the temple was rent in twain from the top to the bottom. Now, I can't prove this, but all I know is that church history says so, that the veil was about four inches thick. That veil that hung between the Holy of Holies and the rest of the tabernacle. Made out of linen, fine twined linen. You know how, how tough linen is? You just try and tear a handkerchief that's made out of linen. It's almost impossible to tear it. Just one itty-bitty thing, so thin. But the veil of the temple, which is many feet high and many feet wide, but it is torn in twain from top to the bottom. That's in the temple. Don't tell me that the scribes and the Pharisees didn't know about that. That would be a goad in their sides. Also, when Jesus hung on the cross, there was darkness over all the earth. From 12 noon until 3 in the afternoon. And there was an earthquake. Don't tell me that they weren't aware of that. Many of these things were so impressive that even the, the Roman centurion, when the scribes and Pharisees didn't acknowledge who Jesus was, but even the hardened Roman centurion said, surely this was the Son of God. When Jesus rose from the dead, an angel of God came down and rolled back the stone. And for fear of him, the angel, the, the, the guards, they fell down as dead men. And they went and reported to the Pharisees what happened. They went to the Pharisees to report what happened. They knew what happened. You know, at the raising of Lazarus from the dead, it tells us that he, there were those who were present when he literally caused that man to come out of the tomb. They went and reported who? To who? They went and reported to the Pharisees what had happened. Over and over and over and over you've got the Pharisees that are involved in all of these things that were pricks in the side in, in, of the Pharisee people. After the resurrection of Jesus Christ and his ascension, we find that these same miracles continued on. These people of the way, as they were known. You have the likes of Peter out on the streets and they brought to him the sick on cots. Multitudes that came and even the shadow of Peter passing by, they were healed. You see, it kept growing. It kept multiplying. Things got, as far as the Pharisees were concerned, things were getting more and more out of hand. How do you control these people? 
They put some of the disciples in jail and send for them the next morning to bring them up before the council. And when they get there, they find the jail is closed. They find all of the guards are in place. But where are the guys that put it in jail? They finally, somebody finds them. They're, they're down the street having a, a revival meeting <laughs> on the streets. Those fellows you're looking for, they're down the street preaching. What do you do with people like that? <laughs> you can see how frustrated they must have got until it reached that stage, and I'm going to have to get involved here with the closing part of my message. Saul of Tarsus got so frustrated with all of these goads and all of these pricks. And so it says, I better mention just one more, and that's the stoning of Stephen. They brought him up before the council. And he preached to them a message and he laid it on them and he told them that they were responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus. I tell you, it's a serious thing to reject the enlightenment that the Holy Spirit would give. The Lord brings this thought to my attention. You know, it was the Sadducees the chief priest at that time was a Sadducee and his small council. They were the ones who went to Pilate and to bring the clincher to try and get Jesus destroyed. They went far enough to say, his blood, referring to Jesus, his blood be upon us and our children. Them and the next generation Believe it or not, in 70 AD when Titus came and took over the city of Jerusalem and literally starved them into submission, that was the end of the Pharisees, 40 years after the crucifixion of Jesus. Them and their next generation. And you never once hear of the Sadducees after Titus destroying the city of Jerusalem. Not in secular history, nor in the Bible. There is no record of Sadducees existing beyond that date. His blood be upon us, and our children is a mighty serious thing. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, he shall also reap, the scripture says. Now, when they stoned Stephen, according to Paul's own testimony, after he was converted, as he stood before Agrippa, he said when it came to Stephen, I gave my voice against him. That in the Greek literally means my vote. I gave my vote against him. He was one of the inner sanctuary by that time. He was one of the main men who opposed Jesus and the people of his way. When we get to Acts chapter 9, as our brother read to us, and Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter. 
in spite of, in other words. That word yet, in spite of. Saul yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. And when you look that up in the, in the Greek and get the full meaning of it all, it's the effulgence of God's glory. It's a it's a flood of resendance, of resplendent light. Suddenly there was a light from heaven, so brilliant, so bright, above the brightness of the noonday sun. Saul, when he's recording it later, describes it that way. Above the brightness of the noonday sun. It's like looking at a welding torch. If you want to go blind, just look at somebody welding without having protective glasses on your eyes. And it literally blinded Saul so that people had to lead him by the hand. There was a light from heaven and he fell to the earth and he heard a voice saying unto him, Saul, Saul, why? Why persecutest thou me? It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. His whole life had been wrapped up and he had been trained in the ways of the Pharisees and self-effort and self-works and prick after prick after prick, conviction after conviction after conviction. He must have gone to bed some nights and really wondered about the events of the day that had taken place where God had given evidence again that Jesus was more than just a man. That he was the Son of God. And he said, Who art thou, Lord? He knew the voice came from heaven. He knew it was God talking to him this time. Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, now, did you ever wonder what Paul expected to hear? <laughs> I can't prove it, because I can't find it in Scripture as a proof. But I think down deep in my heart, he expected to hear, I am the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. That's all he knew was the Old Testament Scriptures and the God of Abraham. As a Pharisee, they posted themselves as being children of Abraham. Well, I can't prove that. But that isn't what he heard anyway. Whatever he expected to hear, I'm sure he was very shocked when he heard the voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus. I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. It's hard for you to kick against the pricks. And he trembling and astonished, astonished, said, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? You go on a little further and you find that he was led to 
the city and Ananias was sent to him and prayed for him and he received his sight. Then what did he do? What a change. What a transformation. Immediately, the scripture says, he went into the synagogues and proclaimed that Jesus was Christ. My. Proclaimed that Jesus was the Son of God. How he had blasphemed, how he had cursed these people, these Christian people. Oh, as far as he was concerned, they were the offscouring of the earth. But all of a sudden, his eyes were opened. Why? Because Jesus loves them. Jesus loves people. We were made by him. We were made for him. He wants to fellowship with us. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. I don't care what your pricks are today. I don't care what, how many times you've been convicted, but if you don't know Jesus, give your heart to the Lord. He said, I stand at the door and knock. If any man hear my voice and will open the door, I will come in and I will sup with him and he with me. Let us pray. Lord, I pray that somehow today it will cause us to know afresh that we're important to God. Just how much you love us, how much you care about people. And I pray, Lord, that if there's one here today who has never prayed the sinner's prayer, and he's still kicking against the pricks, the conviction of the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name they will surrender to you and make you Lord of their life. And I'm going to pray, folks, this morning while your heads are bowed and every eye is closed. I'm going to pray the sinner's prayer. And if you have never prayed the sinner's prayer, and you have been convicted by the Holy Spirit many times, but you've never surrendered your life, would you in your heart, quietly, doesn't have to be spoken out loud, but in your heart, would you pray the prayer I pray? Would you give your life to Jesus? Would you pray this prayer? And I'm going to say it sentence by sentence. And I'm going to have a little pause each time so that you can pray the prayer in your heart. Dear Lord Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came to seek and to save that which was lost. And I'm one of those lost ones. I am a sinner. I stand in need of your salvation. And right now at this moment, I invite you to come in to my heart and wash away my sin and give me your Holy Spirit. I want you to be my savior. I surrender 
my heart and life to you so that I can walk in peace and in fellowship with you and know the peace of God that passes all understanding. Thank you, Jesus. Now, if you prayed that prayer with me, would you tell somebody? Would you just tell somebody? I prayed that prayer this morning, and I invited Jesus into my heart. I pray this message has spoken, not just to the sinners, but to the saints, how God reaches out, how God brings pricks of conviction when we fail or we falter or we do not please the Lord. But that's because he loves us. Why does God bring conviction into our hearts? It's because he cares. The Lord loves you this morning much more than you will ever know or understand until you get to glory. Pastor.